Word of God we now turn to is 1 Corinthians 15. Just a portion of that chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 is a great chapter on the resurrection in which the Apostle Paul teaches the resurrection of Jesus as the ground for our hope, apart from which we have no hope. But in that connection, he also says something key about death and the coming of death into this world, which explains how Christ is the answer to death. So we're going to read verses 12 through 26 of 1 Corinthians 15. This is God's word. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So far we read in God's word this evening on the basis of that scripture and others. Let us now consider the instruction of Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 2 assessed our condition based on the law of God that we are prone by nature to hate God and the neighbor. Then question 6 asks, did God then create man so wicked and perverse? By no means, but God created man good and after his own image in true righteousness and holiness that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Hence, our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. 
Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed, we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, your view of death is one of the hinges on which your entire worldview swings. There are many who say that death is a natural part of life. Death is simply the way things are, the way they have always been, and the way they will always be. Death is even the necessary engine that drives the progress of evolution toward a better future as the weak die and the strong survive. But if you believe the Bible, you have a different view of death. Death is not natural. Not only is death not natural, but it is an intrusion into a creation that was originally made good without any taint of rot or decay. Death is, as the Apostle says in verse 26, an enemy that must be destroyed and that will be destroyed by the God of Jesus Christ. Now which of those two views resonates when you have to stand by the coffin of a loved one? Which of those two views holds up when there are thousands of corpses lying in the aftermath of a battle Is death just the way things are supposed to be? Is it natural? The Christian understands there's more to the world and there's more to our being here than simply to die. But if death is an intrusion and an enemy, as the Bible teaches, that raises the question as to who is to blame for this disaster of death's entrance into the world. The default view of many today, again, is that God is to blame. That's implied in the claim that death is just a part of nature because you have to ask the question, where did nature come from? Who created nature? Well, God did. So if death is a part of nature, then God must be to blame for death since he created nature. And if God is to blame for death, which is the climax of all of the misery that we experience in the few short years that we have here below, then he must be blamed for all the other miseries we experience as well. Why is there disease and suffering? Why is there rust? Why is there decay? Why do thorns and thistles grow instead of flowers? Why do rose petals wither and fall to the ground instead of thriving? God is to blame because God is the author of nature. That's how many look at it. That is the perspective of unbelief. The view of the Bible is very different, though. It's true, God created the world, and God created the human beings who live in the world. But it was not by God that death came. Death came by man. That's the theme for the sermon this evening. Death coming by man. 
First, we will see in line with question and answer six that when God created man, he created him for life. Not for death, but for life. Then in the second point, we'll see in line with question and answer seven that man fell into corruption and so introduced death into the world and into his own experience. And then we'll conclude with the hope of the gospel, which is that this whole awful situation actually sets up the redemption that we have in Christ. Death coming by man, first created for life, second, fallen into corruption, finally set for redemption. Now this Lord's Day involves a kind of trial of God. Now that might sound like a disrespectful or irreverent thing to do. May we put God under trial. May we puny creatures arrogate to ourselves the judgment seat over God. And the answer, of course, is no, if the purpose is anything other than to know the truth. If the purpose is to find fault God with God when there is no fault in him, then that's wicked. But God is not afraid of being put under trial. He's not afraid of scrutiny. In fact, he invites it. He calls us every day to look at the evidence in the world around us and to make a judgment. He tells us, take in with your minds all the things that I have done and come to an assessment, come to an opinion. And at the end of the world, there will be a final judgment. And that final judgment will vindicate God of all of the false charges that men level against him. God will close the mouths of his accusers, and he will close their mouths not by mere brute force or by intimidation because he's bigger than they are, but he will silence them on the basis of what is true, on the basis of what the facts make clear. And those facts begin with the way that God created the world and the way God created human nature within the world. Question and answer six calls our attention to three aspects of the way that God created the first human beings. First of all, God created the first human beings truly happy. Man heartily loved God, his creator, and lived with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. That's the last part of question and answer six. This was a happiness that was untouched by any sadness whatsoever or the shedding of any tears. It was a happiness that was happily naive toward the effects of disease, of death, of decay and rot. It was a happiness before the face of God. God who walked with Adam and Eve and took pleasure in them. Beloved, imagine knowing God and knowing him with a direct knowledge that does not require a book, does not require a preacher. Imagine standing before God, before his face, and knowing that he's happy with you, and he's happy with you just the way you are. He's happy with the things that you think, which he knows because he can see into your mind. He's happy with the things that you say which he knows because his ears are in every place hearing the things that you say. He's happy with the things that you do, and he approves of your behavior. Imagine that. That was Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden 
God was happy with them, and they were happy in their relationship with God. God created them happy. Second, God created the first humans in his image. Now, the image of God is a big topic, but it helps to keep in mind that there are always two components to an image or a picture, a likeness. Some of you here tonight maybe are artists. You like to paint. Well, if you want to paint a picture, that is, make an image, you have to go buy canvas, and you have to get some paints, and you have to get a frame. And let's call these things the paint and the canvas and the frame, the building materials of the image that you're going to make. Then you will take that paint and you will brush it onto the canvas with certain colors in a certain order. And you will give specific content to the image that you want to paint. A face, perhaps, or a landscape, or an animal, or something else. And let's call that the content of your image. But when God created human nature... He put together his building materials. He scooped up some clay. He breathed into it the breath of life, and man became a living soul. God created a living, breathing person who could think and who could reason and who could relate to other persons, God and his neighbor. God created a being who could make choices. God created a being who had a dignity that elevated him above the animals. It's like God was stretching out his canvas and he was arranging his paints on his palette. He made a creature unlike all the other creatures, a creature capable of resembling God in his thoughts, in his behaviors, in his life. Animals don't have that capacity. Plants don't have that capacity. The sea and the dry land don't have that capacity. Human beings do. But then God created Human nature, not only capable of bearing God's image, but actually bearing his image and likeness. What does the image of God mean? Well, just think about, about it. The image of God means that you look like God. It means that you resemble him. And you look like God when you think God's thoughts after him. You look like God when you delight in the same things that God delights in. You look like God when you mimic God's behavior the way children mimic their parents. That often is the way that we speak of our children, isn't it? When our children look like us or they act like us, what do people say? He's the very image of his father. She's the very image of her mother. Well, what defines God's behavior and thinking is his righteous character and his holiness. In other words, to be the image of God, you have to be righteous the way that God is righteous. To be the image of God, you have to be separated from evil and consecrated to what is good. That is, you have to be holy the way God is holy. To be the image of God, you have to see the world and everything that is in the world the way God sees it. You have to know God the way he really is and love him for it. And that was Adam and Eve. They weren't only capable of those things by virtue of the way God made them. They were actually living that way. And that goes a long way to explaining why they were happy. 
they were happy because they were able to fulfill their purpose in life, which wasn't to pursue their own pleasure, but was to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever as His image bearers. That's how God made man. He made him happy. He made him in his own image. And then finally, God created the first human beings truly good. Now just think what it means that God created human beings at all. You ever think about that? He didn't have to. We tend to assume that God had to create us. We have a right to be here. It's not true. He didn't have to create us. He didn't need you or me or anyone else in order to be fulfilled and blessed in himself. God is eternally self-sufficient. He's eternally blessed and at rest in himself, apart from anybody else. He has fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within his own being. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need man. If anything, creating human beings has brought nothing but trouble to God. But he did it anyway. He knew that was going to be the result, but he did it anyway. That's love. He created us. But not only did he create us, he created us good. And good doesn't mean attractive or empowered or effective at doing impressive things. Good means good in the eyes and the judgment and the evaluation of God. In fact, the Bible says God's assessment over humanity was more than just good. He said it was good when he made the sea and the dry land. It was good when he made the plants. It was good when he made the animals. But what does he say when he looks over Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden, beginning to cultivate the garden, living together, what does he say over them? He says, behold, it was very good. That's his assessment. God took pleasure in man, his creation. Intense pleasure. They're like me. That's what he said. They're like me. They think like me. They act like me. They're my image bearers. What all of this reveals is that the purpose for which God originally created human nature was life. God created human nature for life. Now, when we speak of God's purpose, we have to be somewhat precise because there is an ultimate purpose that God has in all things. An ultimate purpose, if we step back into God's view in eternity and we consider what is God, God's purpose for doing anything, what is God's purpose in his creation, well, God's ultimate purpose was not satisfied with the way things were in the Garden of Eden. God's ultimate purpose was not just to create the world or even to create the world good. God's ultimate purpose was to redeem the world and to make it new and better. God's ultimate purpose was not just to create human beings or even to create human beings very good, but his purpose was to reveal his grace and mercy to his elect in the way of redemption 
God's ultimate purpose, in other words, was bound up in the cross of Jesus Christ, which is why Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17 says, all things were created by him, that is, by Christ, and for Christ, and Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things consist. And in line with this ultimate purpose of God, we also understand that God did will the fall into sin. Now, God takes no pleasure in sin. Yet God willed that sin would take place. God willed that the creation would be cursed. God willed that death would come into the world. God willed these things for the same reason that he willed that the brothers of Joseph would take Joseph, their brother, and sinfully sell him into slavery in Egypt. God willed that these things would happen for the same reason that he willed that wicked hands would take Jesus Christ and crucify him. He willed evil to take place because this was the only way to bring in the tremendous good, the ultimate good of his sovereign mercy. There's no place for grace, mercy, and redemption or Christ as a redeemer of a sinful people in a world where there is no sin. So God willed it with the intent of revealing everything that he is, a merciful God, a God who is able to redeem even a dead, corrupt, sinful people through the blood of the cross. So there's that ultimate purpose that stands behind all things. Nevertheless, if we can think of purpose in a different way, maybe a narrower sense for a minute, why did God design human nature the way he did with heart, mind, soul, and will? Why did God mold Adam from the clay and breathe into him the breath of life and make him into his image bearer? Why did God create us with this capacity for feeling such deep and intense emotions? Why did God create us with the ability to have complex and difficult thoughts? Was it just to torture us? Was it just to let us go on struggling for a few years, feeling all of these emotions in a broken world before we fall to pieces in death? Did he give us this capacity for intense feeling just so we could feel the deep intensity of pain and suffering? Was God's purpose in creating human nature merely that human beings would be miserable and die? And the answer clearly, based on the facts of creation, is no. God designed human nature not with death in mind, but with life in mind. God created us with the ability to think deeply so that we could probe deeply into the mysteries of his being. God created us with the capacity for intense emotions so that we could delight intensely in Him and in His creation. God created us to thrive. He created us to thrive in a world that was specifically designed and tailor-made by Him to support us, body and soul, and to lead us to contemplate and behold His glory. That's still true even in a fallen world. How much more true was it in paradise and in the first world? God created us for life, not for death. We need to remember that when we are tempted to have self-deprecating thoughts. 
Sometimes we imagine that it's pious to be self-deprecating about ourselves, about the way that we were made, about the personality that we have, about the body that we have. The more we despise ourselves, the more we despise our bodies or our abilities or our personalities, the more we honor God, we think, sometimes. But beloved, let's understand the truth of what that is. I know there's all kinds of complex feelings that go into that. But at bottom, what is that? It's really an accusation against God who made us. Why did you make me this way? Why did you make my life so miserable, so full of pain? As if when God was knitting you together in your mother's womb, he was hardwiring you for misery? That's not an accurate representation of the facts. Nor is it fair to God. He did not create us for death. He did not create us for misery. He created us for life. We also need to remember this. Take hope as we live in a fallen and broken world today. Sin, death, and destruction are not ultimate. Sin, death, and destruction are not reflective of the way that God made things to be or the way that God wants them to be ultimately. They are an aberration. And God is going to restore, even elevate, what he originally made good. So how did death come into the world? Well, in light of everything that we have seen so far, the answer is clearly not by God. God did not bring death into the world. He created us for life. He created the creation to sustain life. That leaves only one other potential culprit. But before we identify the culprit, we need to have a clearer picture of what the Bible means by death. We tend to think of death as that moment when our time runs out. It's like there's a big hourglass somewhere measuring the amount of time that we have here in this life. While the sand is still running through the hourglass, that's when we're alive. But when the sand runs out, that's when we're dead. Death means our heart beats no longer. Death means our lungs no longer expand. Death means our eyes no longer see. Death means our body is buried and it begins to decay and our spirit flies off to God. And this death is usually only the climax of a long period that leads up to it. Most of our time on earth is a long period of slowly losing the strength that we once enjoyed. We become more and more susceptible to illness, more and more susceptible to affliction. We lose our ability to think clearly and to remember the details of the past. And then we die. And then we're not here anymore. This is death, of course, as we observe it and as we experience it 
is an awful thing. That death that we observe and that we experience is an awful thing. If, beloved, you stand in front of a coffin and a hole in the ground at a funeral and you are appalled by death, then you are on the right track. That's the Bible's view of death. It's an enemy. It's an enemy. Well, there's more to death than simply the running out of the sands in the hourglass. There's a broader understanding of death that is taught in the Bible and that is taught by the Reformed faith. To understand death correctly, we have to understand that death is the undoing of everything that God originally made human beings to be. God made human beings good, we just saw. Well, death is when human beings become depraved. Death is when human beings become filled with every evil thought and desire. God looked on Adam and Eve in paradise and he smiled on them and he took pleasure in them. Well, death is when human beings become vile. It's when they become ugly and disgusting to God so that he can't smile. He can't take pleasure in them because everything that he witnesses in them is like a vile stench rising up into his nostrils in the heavens. Death is when God looks on the earth and finds that the that every imagination in the thoughts of men's hearts is only evil continually. Death is when God actually repents from ever having made man in the first place. So grieved is he in his heart at what he is witnessing down in the earth below him. And that's a quote from Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6, where God is assessing the condition of humanity immediately before the flood which, remember, wasn't that long after the events that took place in the Garden of Eden. God originally made human beings in His own image, looking like Him. Well, death is when human beings begin to look like someone and something else entirely. God is righteous. God is holy. God knows and loves the truth. And everybody who looks like Him who resembles him is righteous and holy and knows and loves the truth. Death is when a man perverts righteousness by lifting his hand to do evil. Death is when a man devotes himself not to God and not to the glory of God, but to his own pleasure, to his own selfish instincts. Death is when a man loves the lie and hides and deception rather than loving and knowing the truth. A depraved person still has the capacity to bear an image. The building materials are all still there. He's still a canvas. There's still paint. But the image that he bears isn't the image of God anymore. If anything, it's the image of the devil. And that's not just me saying that. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. That's who you look like. That's who you are the spitting image of. 
not God, but the devil. God made human beings truly happy. Well, death is when human beings are swallowed up by misery. Death is when human beings are ruled by the flesh. And being ruled by the flesh, they imagine themselves to be happy when they get all the things that the flesh craves. But in truth, they are miserable, miserable. Because everything that they have, everything that they delight in and take pleasure in, will be taken away from them and they will be left empty. Death is ultimately the suffering of hell, which isn't just the suffering of fire and brimstone and darkness. It is the suffering of being far from God being forsaken by God, rejected and abhorred by God. The suffering of hell is the suffering of being expelled from paradise with a fiery sword at your back. And that's death. Children, when you hear people talking about total depravity, I know that's a big phrase, total depravity. Just think, it means death. That's what it is. Death, spiritual death. Someone who is totally depraved, maybe walking around, maybe breathing, maybe doing all kinds of things, may look very much alive. But spiritually, that person is dead. Like a whitewashed sepulcher, looks good on the inside, but on the inside, on the outside, but from the inside, it's just full of dead men's bones. And this death came into the world. We know this very well. It's our experience. It's what we see all around us. But who is responsible? Who is responsible for bringing this death into the world? Verse 21 of the chapter that we read says, It was by man that death came. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. By man came death. The specific man in view is Adam, mentioned in the next verse. Now that doesn't mean Eve is excused. Eve sinned first. Eve was the first one to listen to the devil. Eve liked what the devil had to say. Eve took the forbidden fruit and ate it. Eve then set her eyes on her husband and determined in her heart that she would drag him down with her and offered the fruit to him. Eve is not excused. But Eve was not the first human to be made. And therefore, Eve is not the one who bore the responsibility of headship, representative headship of the family. That was Adam. And Adam knew what he was doing. 
Don't ever doubt that. Adam knew what he was doing. He took the fruit from his wife's hand that she offered to him. He sank his teeth into its flesh. He tasted the juice on his tongue. He swallowed it. And he did all of that with the word of God practically still ringing in his ears that said, in the day that you do this, this thing that you are doing, Adam, eating this fruit in that day, you will die. Surely you will die. And so he did. And we understand what that means now in light of everything that we have just said about what death is. You children know the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and maybe sometimes it confuses you. And you say, I thought Adam was supposed to die on the very day that he ate the fruit. But Adam ate the fruit, and there was all kinds of time that happened afterwards. He had time to put on these fig leaves. He had time to walk out of the Garden of Eden. There practically wasn't even a scratch on him. And then he lived 900 years. Was God telling the truth? Why didn't he die on that very day? Well, God was telling the truth. And Adam did die. And he died on that very day. He died so completely that God had to drive him out of the Garden of Eden, which was paradise, and guard it under lock and key. Adam died. Adam no longer looked like God, but instead he looked spiritually and morally like a monster. Adam was no longer happy, no longer enjoying life with his Creator but he was miserable. Adam was no longer that very good creature that God originally made, but he was ugly, depraved, a shadow of his former self. And from that very moment, starting from the instant the flesh touched his teeth, the sand and the hourglass began to run on Adam's life. And even though Adam would go on to live for 900 years, that didn't change the fact that it was all going to end. Everything he did in this life, he now had to do with the knowledge that it was all going to turn into ashes or it was going to be given over to somebody else. All of his strength would fade, fade, fade with time and become weakness. And then in the blink of an eye, he would look back over that 900 period 900-year period, and it'd be like it was nothing, and it would be all over. That's death. That's not how God created the world or human life. It's what man chose. It's what Adam and Eve willed for themselves and for their children by listening to Satan. They chose death over life. They chose evil over good. They chose themselves over God who made them. That little word by in verse 21 then means two things. It means, first of all, that Adam is the responsible agent who brought the judgment of death into the world. Adam did not invent death. 
a sense, you could say that death was there. As soon as God created a good creation, death was there. It was there as the alternative to the life and the goodness and the joy that God created. God even warned Adam about it. Adam, you must choose the way of life, which means rejecting that other path, which is the path of death. But Adam did not listen. He chose death. And by making that choice, death came into the world by him. Secondly, that word by then means that Adam is the conduit who brings death upon all of us. If you want to imagine it, out of Adam, there is a very long and intricate system of pipes that leads to all of his children, which is every human being. And through those pipes, death and decay spread like some horrible disease that infects everything that it touches. And it touches everyone from the moment they are conceived. In Adam, Paul says, all die. This is the truth of the word of God to us then, beloved. In Adam, we die. In Adam, we die. You die. I die. Our children die. You may not like it when Congress sends all kinds of money and weapons to fight someone else's war far away from home. If our own country gets pulled into that war, you might say, that's not fair. I was against it. I was against it from the beginning. I never supported this, never wanted this. But even so, if the country goes to war, you go to war. And you will feel the consequences of the country going to war because Congress represents you and acts in your stead, whether you like it or not. That's how it works with Adam as well. He's our father. Everything we have in our DNA comes directly from him. And this is the choice that he made for his children, for all of his children. By man came death. And if all die in Adam, well, even so, shall all be made alive in Christ. That leads us to the final point. Because as awful as the situation is in the Garden of Eden, this is the situation that sets us up and prepares us to understand redemption. Now let's be very clear that redemption can only be understood if the situation is accurately assessed. And the situation is total depravity. The question is, in verse question 8, are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? And the answer is yes. Perhaps even more emphatically, indeed we are wholly incapable of doing any good inclined to all wickedness. That's the teaching of the Reformed Confessions. I emphasize that a little bit tonight because this is a point that is often shied away from. We don't like the full force of what the Lord's Day is saying here. I like to listen to podcasts sometimes, and I was listening to a podcast not so long ago by a conservative, reformed 
seminary professor, a man who I appreciate very much, a great deal of a lot of what he has to say, I enjoy and is appreciated. But on this particular episode, the topic was total depravity. And he said total depravity does not mean that humans are as bad as they could possibly be. Total depravity just means that every part of a person is affected by sin, but not entirely affected. So your will is affected by sin, and your mind is affected by sin, and your heart is affected by sin, and your body is affected by sin, but not all of your mind, and not all of your will, and not all of your body. There's still some good that even unregenerate people do because they have common grace. But that's a direct contradiction of what question and answer eight is teaching. Question and answer says wholly incapable of doing any good, inclined to all wickedness. That's the assessment of the Heidelberg Catechism of unregenerate human beings. It says nothing of common grace. The description of the Bible, if anything, is even stronger. Dead. That's what the human being is, apart from the redeeming grace of God. Dead. And if you are dead, there's no partly dead. There's no mostly dead even. It's just dead. Completely dead. Totally dead. In every part. Dead. That's the situation. If we believe what the Lord's Day and what the Bible are telling us. But there's redemption. There's redemption. And out of redemption, restoration and life. If death was a part of nature, as many believe, there could be no hope for redemption. Then death is just the way things are. It's not a judgment. It's not wages that are being paid to a righteous God. It's just the end. You live for a while, you do some things, and then you die. That is the utter meaninglessness and emptiness of life for secular people today, beloved. Nothing matters. There is no redemption. There is no hope. There is only the depressing inevitability of certain death. But we know that there is hope for, re for redemption. And that's because death is not part of nature. Death is a judgment. It's wages that must be paid for sin. And it's wages that Jesus Christ has paid in full for everyone who believes in him with a true and living faith. And if those wages are paid in full, and they are paid in Christ, then death has to start working backwards. And life has to be restored. And that's the regeneration that question and answer eight is talking about. It's the beginning of the resurrection. It's the beginning of the new life that we hope for in Christ. In Adam all die, that's true, but in Christ, all shall be made alive. They shall be made alive on the last day when the Lord calls them from the grave. But they are also made alive now with the new life of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ that is given to them, that makes them new creatures. There's more 
There's more for the child of God than simply to live for a while and then have it all end in the ashes of death. If you are in Christ, you are a new creature. All things for you shall be made new. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the promise of the gospel, which is that death will not have the final word. Death will not have the victory. It is the last enemy, and it is the enemy that will be destroyed through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, its power has already been destroyed in the cross, so that even for us who will face our graves and our lives will end, yet even that dark hole in the ground can only be a portal that opens up into life eternal, and our soul will be caught up into the arms of Christ our Savior, and one day reunited with our bodies, and we will live in a new heavens, in a new earth, where death is no more. Oh, Father, this is our hope. Strengthen it in us. Encourage us by it, that even as we look in a fallen and broken and cursed world around us, that we would not despair, that we would not give up, but that we would walk by our faith in Thee. Forgive, Father, our sins. Send us away from Thy house with Thy blessing. And hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.